0: Several years ago, when we were still living in Tampa, it was a day very similar to this. I was getting ready to fill in and give a guest speaker sermon at the congregation we were at. And it's just about time for services to begin, like under 60 seconds. And so the guest I'm not fully used to this. I'm trying to look at my notes, trying to get my head right, make sure that I'm, I'm ready for this. And an older brother kind of comes up to me older brother, Brother Jeff. And he says, Brother Alan, I have a burning question for you. Burning question. Less than 60 seconds, remember, until we're about to start. And I said, Jeff, go ahead. Absolutely. I assume he's going to ask me about maybe what I'm talking about or, or a verse, maybe something from earlier. And he says, okay, burning question for you. Have you ever known anyone who says... They like science fiction, but they don't like stories about time travel. I thought about it for a moment. Didn't take long. And I said, no, Jeff, I haven't ever encountered that. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, me neither. And just goes off to sit down. I learned that day that Jeff and I had very different definitions of what a burning question was. <laughs> also, that Jeff had some great ideas running through his head all the time. To me, that did not meet the, the threshold of a burning question, right? We, we deal with questions, all of us, all day long, every day. Like we're asking people questions. People are asking us questions, But occasionally, there are truly burning questions, but those are special in in several ways, right? They are important to some degree. They are urgent, probably, to some measure. Some things are important, but they're not always urgent. But a burning question, it's important, it's urgent, and I would say as well, there's implications following, depending how a burning question is answered, If a question meets those three categories, now I'd be on board. Now I'd say that is truly a burning question. And that's what I want us to consider tonight as we are in the word together. A few burning questions, specifically burning questions from Babylon's furnace. I'm excited to be with everyone here tonight. Thank you for being here. We're going to spend time in the word, which we know is going to enrich us. It's going to be beneficial to us. And so I invite you to grab your Bibles and be ready to dive in with me as we talk about some burning question from Babylon's furnace. Go ahead and turn over to Daniel chapter 1, if you would. We'll be really considering two accounts in the lesson tonight. And they are pretty familiar to us, I think, if we have, especially if we've grown up in the pews. We know the two stories that we want to talk about tonight. And some of you may already be like, wow, the furnace, Alan, that's, that's chapter three. You're taking me to chapter one. You've mistitled your lesson here. Not so fast, my friend. Yes, the physical furnace that Nebuchadnezzar builds, we're going to read about that in a little bit in chapter three. But Babylon's furnace is in full display right here in chapter one. We read about four men, Daniel, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we call them. It's not their original names, the scripture tells us. These four men are immediately caught up in this furnace in chapter one, as Babylon, the nation, is ready to cook them down and mold them into something entirely new. Those of us familiar with this passage know that Babylon has just taken many people from the kingdom of Judah. Because of Judah's sin, many have been captured and taken back as prisoners to Babylon. These four men included in that number. And because of who they were, maybe because of some aptitude that they had shown, Babylon decides these men and others could be useful to us at some point. We could put these guys to work. But first, we need to Babylonicize them a little bit. We need to put them through our education. We need to reduce them down and turn them into something new. And we can read about that process a little bit in chapter 1. These men are in a new place. They're given new names, right? Uh, verse 6 of chapter 1, among these were Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we're told. That's the full, the the true names of these men. But they're given new names, right? The chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. New place, new names. Undoubtedly, a new language they're going to have to learn. New values. They're going to be taught new knowledge. They're going to be taught about things the Babylonian empire knew about being a sophisticated people that they were. They're going to be taught new customs. They're going to be taught about new requirements that they'll be expected to abide if they want to stay on here in Babylon. And there's really no choice about that. Sounds pretty scary, but this is kind of what earthly kingdoms do. Right? This is what we do as civilizations, and to some degree, it makes sense. If you're going to be one of us, you've got to be one of us. You've got to talk like we talk. You've got to act like we act here, honor the things that we honor. Do we think our culture is vastly different from this? We think about how we, as a society, Look at up-and-coming generations. What are our plans for them? What's the curriculum designed to do? It's designed to turn people into what we think are, are good Americans. We are going to teach you our values. You're going to learn English. You're going to learn our history. You're going to eat American food in school. You're going to learn to value independence, freedom, autonomy. You're going to defend education as an important thing, financial security, tolerance at all costs. You're going to adopt belief systems rooted in science, logic, pragmatism. and It doesn't matter if you are in public school or private school, if you're using homeschool curriculums. All of these, to some degree, are designed that way intentionally. And in a lot of ways, we'd say, well, that makes sense. And that's, that's probably good in a lot of ways. As a society, it makes sense to teach people this is what is important to our society here. And in other ways, it's not so great. At work, you get out of school, you go to work, same thing continues. What are the corporate values where you work? You're going to learn these. You're going to incorporate these into your work. We value innovation. We value productivity. We value results at all costs. You are going to learn to produce these values. And in every other aspect of our lives, we're always being shaped by society. By this and you will be happy follow your heart no matter what. The greatest love of all is learning to love yourself. This and so many other things valued in our society are constantly bombarding us. We face it in a different way than the men we're talking about, but we face it just the same as them to some degree. And we have choices the same that they did. Now, we It was read before us just as we started our service, the the particular choice in question in chapter one, would these men eat this food that was set before them, this food that was not lawful for them to eat? And if you've never read this before, you might wonder, you might have some intrigue, there's some excitement, are they going to eat it? It looks like everyone else from Judah is eating it. What are these four men going to do? But as we read, they said, We're not going to eat that. And they go to the eunuch and they offer a compromise. They say, We're not eating that. But so you feel better about this, give us something we can eat and test us. Let's see if it's going to put you in danger or not. Because the eunuch is scared. If I don't feed you the king's food and then you look not very healthy, that's going to come back on me. It was read for us that providentially, or I should say miraculously, God takes care of these four men, and they look healthier than ever, just eating vegetables. And this is not, this is not a, a passage where we'd say, see, just eat vegetables and you'll be healthier. This is a miracle that is happening. These guys get fit off of just vegetables, and they look better than everyone that's eating meat and eating these other things. God takes care of them. But there is a burning question for us as we read this, something not directly spoken to us in the passage, but we have to consider it. When we read these men and the choices they make in Daniel 1, this question is screaming at us. Who are you? Who are you? These men faced this question in that moment with, with the king's food in front of them, and they had to ask themselves, who am I? As I watch other men from Judah eating this food that was not allowed to be eaten. Who am I? Am I someone that does this? Am I a child of Babylon now? Or am I a child of God? Many times in our lives, we're going to have to ask ourselves this question. And it is a burning question because it is important. It is urgent. And there are big implications depending on how we answer this question. So who are you? Do you know? Maybe more specifically, whose child are you? God has always wanted our identity to be connected to him as our father. And he has a very clear idea of who he wants you to be. Just like he did for Israel. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. God talks about his relationship with Israel Talking through Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. God wanted Israel for a son. And we can read in the Exodus account about what's happening during that time. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go. God wants his people for his children. and He's protective of them. And then even to the people in Ezekiel chapter 20, again, as God years later looks back on this and is talking about this moment, he tells them, on that day, I swore to them, I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on. Every one of you, do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. God came to the children of Israel and said, I want you to be my children. I want you for sons and daughters, and this is what you can do. And if you do this, I'll be your father. I'll call you out of Egypt and take you to a new place. And though Pharaoh is proud... Early on in this, and God humbles him through various plagues, Israel finally comes out of Egypt. But did they really? Sure, they, they physically leave the region that we would have called Egypt at that time. But though God brought Israel out of Egypt, they never, never really left that place. It's not until Exodus thirteen sixteen uh, 16, that quickly, the people of Israel are saying this. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots, ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Another instance in Numbers 11, the people of Israel wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That cost nothing. It was free in Egypt. The fish cost nothing. Cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. There's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Even further, if we go back to Ezekiel, When God tells us what he told the people, we see their response though. God says, I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on. Every one of you do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I'm the Lord, your God, but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Yes, out of Egypt, God called Israel and they physically walked out, carrying as much Egypt as they could with them. He called them out and they refused to go. Israel remained fascinated with Egypt and its gods, and then they would just trade Egypt for the next nation of the day. They would start to enjoy Moab. They'd start to enjoy the Philistines. They'd start to enjoy the Sidonians. It didn't matter. Israel always was civilizations of earth. They never left here. And so Samson was always wanting to be around the Philistines. Solomon found himself always wanting another wife from another nation. Jeroboam found himself building idols at opposite parts of the kingdom because they never left. They enjoyed the things of Egypt. And Egypt symbolizes all the things that we think about when we think about a nation. The scripture starts using Egypt as an example. It will switch to Babylon as history goes. It will switch to Rome later. And yet these are all the same example. These are kingdoms of earth. And it's hard for us to let that go. It's hard for us to say, I'm not a child of this kingdom. I'm a child of God. But Jesus shows us the path of the true child of God. It's fascinating. In Matthew chapter 2, we can read about the history of Jesus' early life on earth when he's still a child. In Matthew chapter 2, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a, in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose. And took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Fascinating example where Jesus goes and spends time in Egypt until Herod dies and then comes back. And Matthew says, This is what Hosea was talking about. That that was about Jesus, that he would come out of Egypt one day, just as Israel came out of Egypt. And that is true. Physically, both of them did. But Jesus actually comes out of Egypt when God calls him. At every time in his life where Jesus is called to come out of the world, to be different from the world, he answers the Father's call and comes out of Egypt unlike the sons of the past. Jesus proves himself to be the true son of God because when he is called, he actually comes. All those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Jesus shows us that path and Paul reminds us here in Romans. This is how Jesus lived his life when he was on the earth. And so he could be only 12 years old but be explaining to his earthly parents that he had to be about his father's business. Jesus could have nothing at all to eat and yet tell his disciples, I have food to eat that you don't know about. My food said Jesus is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John four 32. Jesus could be declared to be a well pleasing son of God in Luke Chapter three, as the spirit comes down like a dove and and those around hear the voice of God saying, this is my son. And interestingly enough, right after that happens, Luke takes us into a genealogy, connecting Jesus all the way back to Adam, who Luke calls Adam, the son of God. Luke pointing out Jesus fulfilling what Adam could not do, What the people of Israel could not do be a dutiful child and come when the Father calls. Christ succeeds where Adam, where Israel, where we often fail. How about the Transfiguration? Fascinating passage to read about the transfiguration. Jesus's life was completely focused in accomplishing the father's will in coming out of the world to do the father's will. We read about the transfiguration. We read it in several gospels. We read about Jesus taking Peter, James, and John, going up in a remote area to pray. And while doing so, he, him being changed, his face shining, his clothing dazzling white. And then Moses and Elijah appear as well, and sometimes we, we read about that passage, we make some applications because after, you know, the apostles say, oh, we should, we should make tabernacles for all three. Of, you know, I mean, all three of you guys. And God says, this is my son, hear him. And we read them and we say, oh, so in this, we're really underscoring Jesus is better than the law and the prophets. This is Moses and Elijah, and that's a true application but this happened for a reason as well. There is a reason Moses and Elijah are the people that show up at the transfiguration. And Luke tells us why, because when they show up, they are talking to Jesus and they're having a very specific conversation. They are talking to Jesus, Luke tells us about his pending departure. Same word that we would use for Exodus. Jesus was focused on his pending departure at Calvary because he was always focused on the Lord's will. And what two better people to come talk about an exodus or a departure with you. Moses, who would lead the people out of Egypt and Elijah tasked with turning the hearts of Israel back to the Lord God. Jesus' life on this earth was bound up in living like one who had been called out of it. And that had implications for him. Though he was a son. He learned obedience. From what he suffered. We're told in Hebrews 5, eight, Being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. If you ask Jesus, who are you? How would he have answered? Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The scripture tells us that's the resurrection, which proves to us that Jesus is the son of God but you cannot be resurrected if you have not died. And Jesus was obedient to the point of death and vindicated by the Father in the resurrection. God calls us out of this world, calls us to come out of Egypt, call Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out of Babylon. Do we heed that call like Jesus like the men we're speaking about? Or do we ignore it, like Israel? Do we know whose child we are? If you do not know who you are, that is a burning question you need to answer tonight. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew it. They acted like sons of God rather than sons of Babylon. And so our story continues for tonight. We're skipping over chapter 2, which we can read about Daniel. But we continue in the chapter 3 where Daniel, not, not included, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This story may be even more well known than the first chapter. There's so, probably every kid in the auditorium could tell us, tell me this story. Tell me about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Tell me about the fiery furnace. It kicks off in chapter three, where we're told Nebuchadnezzar has built a huge image and he has big plans for this image. He's decided that he has a special band of musicians. And whenever they play, everyone, everyone is to fall down and worship this new image. And just in case that's not clear, he has a contingency plan while he's building the huge image he's also built a massive furnace which has one sole purpose people that don't worship the image they go inside don't, don't let the symbolism of that be lost on us either. Nebuchadnezzar is ready to burn away what he feels are the impurities in his kingdom. He is ready to refine Babylon further and make people get on board. And so if we were to read in chapter 3, we won't spend time reading the verses. If you have not read it recently, read it again tonight. <clears throat> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know they don't participate. They will do things in Babylon that are not contrary to the will of God. They are working in the kingdom currently. However, this is a bridge too far. They will not participate, and people find out about this. And they are brought before the king. <clears throat> and it's told that, hey, when, you, when, the, when the musicians play, <clears throat> these three men... They ignore your command, king. And Nebuchadnezzar hears this and says, okay, I'll paraphrase here. I'll give you one more chance. Maybe you haven't up to this point, gentlemen. But let's try it one more time here. I'm going to call the musicians in here. They're going to play. And I'm going to watch and see what you do. And if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And those of us who know the story, or if we're reading it for the first time, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to even answer you in this matter. But they still do. 17, if this be so, our God who's able to, who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And immediately the king is filled with fury. The expression on his face changes, the scripture tells us. He orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter. It is already a tool of capital punishment. It's hot enough already. He heats it seven times more. And they take these men and bind them and take them to the fiery furnace. These men who have done everything God has wanted them to do. They have kept themselves pure from the king's food. They have restrained themselves from worshiping this golden image, and when when questioned by it, they confidently say, "We don't answer to you. We're not going to do this. Do what you will." Incredible faith by these men, and yet they are grabbed and bound and taken to the furnace and thrown inside of it. And if we were reading this for the first time, we might have a burning question in this moment. We might really be wondering, where is God right now? We might be saying, because God brought these men here to Babylon and they have done nothing but serve him and Speak his truth even to power and at, at fear of great pain and death. Where is God right now? Why did he not stop this? How did this get so far? Why, are, why is this happening to these good men? This could be a question we often ask as well in our own lives, Right? Maybe we don't verbalize it, but we feel it sometimes when we have certain financial distress and we wonder, where is God? I need help. We're losing a loved one to an illness. Where, where is he? Losing a loved one to the world. Why is this happening? When we're anxious or despairing about something, when our bodies are sick, when our friends turn against us, so many other things, right? That we wonder, where is God in all of this? We can feel hopeless. We can allow ourselves to feel betrayed. But as we talked even this morning in David's lesson, the existence of difficulty or struggle is not evidence of the absence of God. The hard times are no proof that we have been abandoned by God far from it because we have a God that chooses to be right there with us. Continue reading in chapter three, verse 24. As soon as the men have been thrown into the fire, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said, yes, yes. True, O King, and he answered and said, "But I see four men. I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God." Well, there's a lot that can be made of that statement. That's probably a whole another lesson for someone to tackle. Who is in there? With them, And whether you believe this is literally the manifestation of God, whether you believe this is an angel, in both cases, God is with these men in this fire right now. Because that is who our God is. We want to know where is he during all these sad things happening. He tells us in scripture in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you. Or forsake you. Even in all those times. Where we've been questioning. Where, where is he? Do you want to know where God is? He is in the same place that we are. He has been through. The same things. That we have been through. In financial distress. We say where is God? Jesus is walking the earth. With no place to even lay his head. When we're losing a loved one to illness and we say, where is God? Jesus is standing outside Lazarus' tomb weeping. Where is God when we lose a loved one back to the world and it breaks our heart? Jesus is watching droves of disciples sneer and turn away because he gave them a hard teaching. Where is God when we're anxious When we're despairing, Jesus is praying in the garden with sweat like blood. Where's God when our bodies are sick? They're beginning to fail. Jesus is being crushed under the weight of a cross. Where's God when our friends betray us, when the world turns against us? Jesus is in the courtroom with one of his dear friends outside saying, I don't know him. Where's God when we feel like the world has us in its grips? The father is declaring, this is my firstborn child. Let him go. Where's God when we're struggling with sin? Jesus is before the throne making intercession for us. Where is he when we don't even know how to pray? The spirit is with us, helping us find the words. To speak to the Father. Where is God? Where else is He except with us in the fire always? We do not have a God that disappears when times are tough. We have a God that stays in the fire with us. We have a high priest, tempted and always like we are, yet without sin, rallying to us, making us more like His Son. Peter writes to Christians telling them, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come to test you. As though something strange were happening to you, Peter says, this is the plan. This is how our God is working. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Paul needed Timothy to understand that. Again, to the church in Rome, indeed, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. I think I might have the wrong verse there. In in, in Romans chapter 8, we read about Jesus not being spared. Starting in verse 31. uh, What then shall we say to these things if God's for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here we go. And the discipline has a purpose. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That first question, if we said, yes, I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. Well... That means discipline is coming. Paul to the Philippian church, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. The trials, the suffering, the pain, the difficulty, the fire that we are in, is making us more like the sun. And if we can partake in his suffering, in his death, in his pain, then one day we can partake in his resurrection as well. It's hard in the moment. And we wonder where is God, but be reminded by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that he is with us even in the fire. And he will treat us differently at times. Each of us will have a different experience with that. Peter found himself in prison waiting to be executed in the book of Acts. And the Lord comes and saves Peter from death. And just earlier in that chapter, James has been arrested and is in prison waiting to be executed. And the Lord saves James through death. And we don't like that. We say, I want the Peter treatment. I don't want the James situation. But consider just a moment, who really received a greater deliverance in that chapter? Peter was saved, yes, brought out of the prisons, reunited with Christians. James was called home to be with the Lord. Sometimes God will save us from our troubles. Sometimes he will save us through them but he is always with us. And so we come to the final burning question, and it's a short one, not as long as the others we've talked about. At the end of our passage in Daniel chapter three, having seen everything that has just occurred, having seen the men come out of the furnace, not even smelling like smoke, Nebuchadnezzar is stunned by this and says things have to be different and he makes a proclamation. Therefore I make a decree the king says in, chap- in verse 29 any people, nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue this way. When Nebuchadnezzar encountered these stories and saw what our God can do and is doing in people's lives, that changed him a little bit. And he he turned a new leaf for a little while. When we consider this story, when we, when we read about our Father in this way, here's the final burning question for each and every one of us tonight. What now? Nebuchadnezzar saw this and he had a what now moment. He was prompted that he needed to do something. He needed to make a change. He needed to do something. I don't know how else to say it. How do we feel when we are encountering this account of the Lord? Are you prompted to do something? Are you prompted to make a change? Is what now a burning question for you? Have you taken account of your life and have you said, I don't know how I would have answered that first question, who am I before, but I want to be a child of God. Do you want to put on Christ in baptism? Do you want to come out of Egypt and be part of God's family? Maybe you have done that previously, but for a while you have been wondering along, where is God And you have not been living like he is with you at all times like he is. What now? What will you do with this story of great faith tonight? Opportunity is available to you. And we welcome you to come forward and help you in any way that we can. While we stand, while we sing.